welcome to YHGV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma. We are at episode 21. Here with me today is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. And greetings to you, Christina. Welcome everyone to Magical Medical Tour. Dr. Glenn Wallman, I will be your medical guide each week as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for optimal health. How are you doing this week, Christina? Fantastic, with this nice cool weather that's come hit us down here in Los Angeles. You like that, huh? <laughs> it's nice. It's nice. You know that per you know that perfect zone where you really don't have to like you're not like like really dealing with all the desert heat or the Santa Ana winds blowing and it's just nice between the humidity and the heat. Great mm. balance. I like the heat. I like the desert and the heat. How's uh, Trinity? What's happening in Trinity's the world of Trinity? Going good. We have a lovely, you know, Rosemary Todd Clough tomorrow. She she works with uh, teachers who work with children. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And she created these things called Yoga Dots. So we have her on tomorrow. We're very excited. You know, anything to do with kids, the next generation, and how we're educating them and creating all the awareness and getting them moving into this life is always exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it is exciting. And speaking about exciting, I'm I'm introducing a new segment today. We're going into a new quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. We've been in the quadrants of normal healthcare, you know, interviewing uh, cardiologists and pulmonologists and infectious disease people. And we've even gone into a little bit of uh, some variations with sleep medicine doctors and hospice doctors and addictive doctors. And we certainly have moved into the alternatives and integrative uh, care of uh, homeopathy and traditional Asian medicine. And a few weeks ago with Dr. Fox, chiropractic. This week, my special guest is Dr. Beth Nash. Uh, she is a true innovator. Uh, aside from uh, being a clinician, she also has been into healthcare publishing. She's into uh, innovative ways of improving patient care and empowering patients. And she's doing many things that we're going to talk about today to innovate the actual healthcare practice in our world. So I would like to uh, welcome to all of our viewers and to you, Christina, Dr. Beth Nash. Welcome, Dr. Nash. Thank you so much. Hello, Dr. Nash. Thank you for joining Hello. us here on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Beth, what I usually do as the medical guide is give people somewhat of a direction of where we're going to go today, and hopefully we will go through some of that path. So I always start out with uh, uh, having our viewers learn a little bit about your journey in terms of why you decided to become a healer, when it happened, uh, what uh, places you went to to get to where you are today. Then we're going to look at uh, your views of um, healthcare and uh, its uh, issues and how some of these could be fixed. And I want to look at a number of areas that you work in, uh, including communication, uh, patient empowerment, social media, and technology. How does that sound to you? Sounds great. Excellent. Why don't we start out with a little bit of your journey? Tell us about you. What brings you to uh, the healing arts and uh, what do you bring special to it? So I started out um, 
as sort of a math science nerd uh, in high school, I was even <laughs> captain of the math team. Uh, you know, played on the bridge team and the chess team. And uh, I went to college and decided to study biology. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. And in, at that time, uh, I have to be very honest with you and say that I didn't really have any particular healing ideas, but I just thought, oh, well, you know, I could get into medical school, so I guess I'll go to medical school. <laughs> and uh, I had done a lot of um, basic science research, and I just sort of thought I would become a basic scientist academic. Um, and uh, a few things uh, transpired to change my journey. Um, I uh, was studying infectious diseases. Um, it was a three-year fellowship. I uh, did one clinical year and then two basic science research uh, years, and they were really basic science. And uh, during that time, uh, my younger brother uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and he died uh, in very short order. So uh, within a few months, he was dead. And uh, it was uh, just as I was finishing my fellowship. Um, and it, it just rocked my world, obviously, but also um, I got to see our healthcare system from the patient perspective, and it really wasn't very pretty. Uh, so here was this 28-year-old kid who was dying, um, and really being treated terribly, really um, almost ignored by his healthcare providers because there was nothing they could do for him. So that was number one. Number two was that um, my brother literally died around the time I finished my fellowship and started my first job. Um, so we mentioned that I was an infectious diseases doctor. Well, I went into infectious diseases because I liked the scientific idea of making a diagnosis and curing the infection. Unfortunately, the AIDS epidemic had just started. So I, I, I went from treating people who I could make better to people who were chronically ill and, you know, had at that time almost an uncertain, uh, a certain death sentence. Um, and so uh, that's when I learned uh, that there's a lot more to healing uh, than curing the patient, that healing is a whole different thing. So from then on, I have to say there were two things that motivated me. One was life is short, take risk, and the other was um, find a way to uh, improve um, the healthcare system and, and the way that patients are treated. Yeah, and that's that's been your life journey. And thank you for sharing some of those very personal things with us. Uh, so let's let's continue on your journey a little bit. Uh, and you moved from infectious disease. Where did you go from there? Yeah, so I spent about um, seven or eight years actually uh, as an infectious diseases um, specialist, and it was really my dream job. I have to say, it was phenomenal. Um, I learned a tremendous amount, and as I said, I AIDS was really one of the best learning experiences for me because, again, I really learned that you can heal without making the person physically better. Um, and I also learned about team-based care. So with AIDS patients, it wasn't just one doctor and a patient, but, you know, you needed the, uh, the nutritionist and the physical therapist, and, and so we really introduced team-based care. It was a phenomenal uh, experience. Um, 
The other thing that I learned as an infectious diseases doctor, and I'm sorry to dwell on this so much, but I, I really feel that it was um, a key pivotal moment for me, is in my outpatient practice in infectious diseases, I was seeing these patients who nobody else knew what to do with. And they would have all these vague symptoms and nobody could figure it out. And what I came to realize was that what these people needed was for somebody to listen to them. And to, you know, they, people just, other practitioners were just giving them lots of tests and trying to get rid of them. And many of them had really social problems that I think were influencing their health. And so that introduced me to the whole notion of the mind-body connection and how your physical, your mental state can really influence your physical health. So I knew I was going to do something different. Um, and, um, the next thing I did will sound a little strange, but um, I spent three years as a managed care medical director, and that was sort of my on-the-job MBA. I really learned about quality and um, improving processes, and it was also um, a very, uh, very informative, although not exactly um, healing uh, kind of experience. And from there, um, I actually... Uh, took a job at a startup. It was an online service exclusively for doctors where doctors could actually talk to each other in bulletin board like discussion groups. This is actually pre-World Wide Web, I should tell you, sort of in the in the 80s um, and um, 90s, 90s, sorry, that was the 90s, late, uh, middle 90s. And what I saw was that doctors were collaborating with each other and actually solving their clinical problems across the country. So a doctor in the middle of nowhere could get help with a case um, by communicating with other doctors online. And it was, it was um, I, I can't even begin to explain to you how eye-opening this was. It was like a eureka moment, like, oh my God, technology can really help to improve care. Um, so um, the, the other thing that doctors were able to do online actually was to talk about their own problems, problems with difficult patients, problems with substance abuse, problems with HIV infection themselves. It was a safe, secure, doctor-only environment. Uh, you know, I don't think that makes sense today, but again, it opened my eyes up to how healing could happen um, even in the online, not face-to-face -face world. Yeah, that, that's very uh, innovative in itself. We always, uh, patients are always worrying about second opinions, but behind the scenes, uh, doctors are asking other doctors and going online and, and communicating Absolutely. with each other all the time. We're all, you're getting second opinions even if you don't know you're getting second opinions in many cases. Don't you find that? Absolutely. And when I was in clinical practice, you know, we used to do the so-called curbside consults where, you know, you'd run into a colleague in the hallway and say, oh, I'm glad I, I ran into you. I have this patient, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? And I think there's a lot of that um, in medicine. And, um, and I think bringing that online just enhances it. Mm -hmm. You then went into... Uh the publishing world and healthcare. I did. I did. So it, it all maybe sounds a little strange, but I think the common thread that you'll see is it is about healing and it is about communication. 
Um, so I took a job um, at the BMJ Publishing Group. It used to be called the British Medical Journal. It's one of the top five um, uh, general medicine uh, journals in the world. And um, they were they were very innovative and they were doing some really interesting things. So what they wanted me to do was to help them create a website for patients um, that would help patients understand their chronic medical problems. So what my job was was to take very complicated uh, medical information and really translate it into patient-friendly language. And it was a real learning curve for me because um, using lay language to explain complicated things really can be done. But some doctors, um, and myself included at the beginning, find it frustrating because it's not exactly correct. So you can't, uh, you know, you have to kind of make it understandable and then you might lose a tiny bit of the science, but it doesn't really matter as long as you're getting mm -hmm. the information across. I think the other thing that I learned was really what is evidence-based medicine? I didn't really understand what it was. I thought that evidence-based medicine was reading the literature and then doing what the literature says. Well, what I learned and what I came to really embrace is that what evidence-based medicine is, is looking at the totality of the available research evidence and then using it to make a clinical decision in concert with two other incredibly important pieces. So the first important piece is the knowledge and expertise of the doctor. And the second more important um, piece is the values and the preferences of the patient. So what I came to learn is that um, in most clinical situations, there is no one single right answer. Mm. And the, the right answer is the answer that is best for the patient. Um, so one really great example um, that I did a lot of writing about um, in my BMJ days was prostate cancer. Um, where there are three really three different approaches to somebody with prostate cancer. One is to do watchful waiting, do nothing, just follow the patient and see what happens. The second is to do radical surgery, and the third is to do radiation. And the truth is that the uh, outcomes are not really different. Um, but different people will make different decisions. So one person will say, I don't want that cancer in my body. I have to get it out. Another person will say, I don't want any interventions if I don't need them. Um, so, you know, and then some people say, well, radiation maybe is the middle of the road. Um, but anyway, you really have to explore what kind of person you are. And that has to be in dialogue with, with your doctor. So what we were doing was really putting the patient in a position to understand the clinical decisions so that they could work with their doctor to make the right one for them. Hmm. Excellent. You, you know, you do have a common thread. It's not just about healing. It's, it's about looking at systems and analyzing systems and trying to figure out ways to improve the systems. Also, you then came back here, you worked for another magazine. Can I we talk did. about that. Yeah. So, um, so I spent about eight years, um, at the BMJ and then, um, I spent an, a little over a year, um, at consumer reports. 
Um, mm. And some of the content I had developed um, at the BMJ was being used at Consumer Reports. And so um, what I was responsible for at Consumer Reports was um, working on their health strategy and figuring out other ways to empower patients to make the right health decisions for them. And so we went beyond just the medical information that I had already created at the BMJ, but also to start looking at how do you pick a hospital? How do you pick a doctor? Uh, how do you pick a drug? Can you take a generic drug? How does it compare to a brand name drug? And all of those sorts of questions. Ultimately, um, I, um, I left Consumer Reports because I just had so many interests. I wanted to pursue them in a, in a consulting uh, arrangement so that I could really delve into lots of different um, areas. And so what I've become really interested in um, in the past couple of years is technology. And I want to try to explain that because it's a little bit confusing. On the one hand, I think technology has caused a rift in the doctor-patient relationship. So I think there's a lot of negatives about technology. Uh, doctors aren't looking at you. They're looking at the computer. You're getting too many tests. Um, you know, I think technology in many ways has done more harm than good. But I think there are a whole host of ways that technology can do the kinds of things I saw um, at the dial-up online service for physicians, namely to enhance um, relationships. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so, um, and, and some of this is work that I'm doing. Some of this is work that others are doing. Um, but let's take online patient discussion groups. Um, so let's say there's a patient with a chronic medical condition who uh, lives in Alaska. Um, the, you know, the doctor may have never seen um, a patient who's got the particular problems that patient has, but there are patients all over the world who may be very similar. So patients can go into online discussion groups and find other people um, who share some of their symptoms, who have some coping strategies. There's a whole lot you can learn from another patient that your doctor really doesn't know about because your doctor doesn't necessarily have that condition. That's um, true. So um, I'll give you um, one personal uh, example. I had a very dear friend who died of metastatic breast cancer. And in her online discussion group, um, she actually learned about a particular blood test that she could get that might allow her to get into a clinical trial um, for a particular um, drug that uh, was being uh, was was had some promise. And as a result of that interaction with another patient, she actually got a treatment that helped to prolong her life that her doctor didn't even know about. So um, I, that's one example um, of where technology can be incredibly um, useful and not interfere with the doctor-patient, professional-patient relationship, but rather uh, enhance it. Um, another uh, area that's really interesting to me are sensors, uh, both on the body and in the house. So let's say you're a diabetic and you have an automatic sensor that tells you what your blood sugar is all day long. 
you, the patient, get a very good idea about what things you eat, what things you do influence your blood sugar and can allow you to regulate your own blood sugar better than any sort of um, prescription the doctor gives you based on, you know, a guess. Beth, um, yes. Beth, uh, you're talking about, you know, what people that are diabetics now take their blood sugars. You're talking about a different type of sensor, sensor that so might talking, be, mm -hmm. tell us what you're Yeah. So instead of pricking your finger, you know, a few times a day, what if you had an implantable uh, device that just fit over your finger um, that continuously recorded your blood sugar? And, and these, these devices actually exist and are in testing right now. Um, you know, so I, the bottom line is I think we patients and, and I use the word patient. It doesn't bother me. We're all patients. We patients know our own bodies better than any doctor knows our body. Right. And so I think that there are, um, you know, that we we're in a better position to monitor our own bodies and, and make make appropriate healthcare decisions um, based on what we find. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And to some degree, I mean, we know our bodies. We don't necessarily know what the pathology is, but we know well, this this yeah. hurts or this doesn't feel right or something like that. It's about partnership, I believe, right. so, right. Um, and a dialogue uh, between the doctor and the patient. And I think doctors um, really need to change and really understand the value of listening to the patient. So there's a there's actually a very famous um, uh, piece written, I think, in the 1920s by Francis Peabody that says the the key. I'm paraphrasing, but the key to caring for caring for the patient is to care for the patient. Right? Mm -hmm. The doctor really needs to care and want to hear what the patient has to say and not dismiss it. And so there really is this whole piece of dialogue. So I understand that I, on the one hand, I'm talking about sort of simple relationship things and going back to an earlier day. And on the other hand, I'm looking at technology and saying, how can that help us to actually, you know, communicate even better? We look at the, uh, world health organization and a number of studies come out ranking, uh, countries around the world. And as Americans, we always want to believe that we're number one in things. And we're clearly not. We're, I think, 37th in healthcare in one area and 14th <laughs> in another area, which, which is not very good. But when I'm practicing and I'm working with uh, clients and with other physicians, it always seems like the care is good. You know, and I, I'm not always sure of the statistics, although there is validity to certain parts of it. So what do you see in our system that's broken? Mm -hmm. And what do you see that's good right now? So obviously, technologically, in terms of technical advances, um, we're way ahead of the game. Um, but in terms of um, the care. The hands-on care of the patient, I think we're doing a very poor job. So, you know, I think what's happened is we've gotten into this bad situation where we're over-testing, we're worried about litigation, um, and so we're doing just way too many tests. Then we're finding problems, then we're chasing those problems, then we're causing problems, 
in the work of oh my gosh <laughs> that are really incidental findings um and you know i think that doctors uh doctors feel really worried that they're going to get sued and so instead of thinking about the patient they're thinking you know about they're worrying about what they need to do uh to avoid litigation i mean i think it's gotten really bad and i just want to be really clear i i'm not a doctor hater i love doctors i think i think most doctors go into the field with all of the right um right feelings actually better than me right because i already told you i went in as a science nerd but i, I do think that um that most doctors want to do the right thing i think there are some things within the system that prevent them from doing that uh, i'll give you um you know uh a, a, another problem is just that doctors have you know they're under constraints um to see you know a patient every six seven ten minutes and so when you feel under the gun, I think it's very hard, um, you know, to do everything you think is right. It's a lot easier to write a prescription for an antibiotic than to explain to the person why they really don't need the antibiotic. And mm -hmm. so, there, you know, that's caused harm because now we've got, uh, we've bred uh, germs that are resistant to antibiotics because of the overuse um, of antibiotics. So mm -hmm. I think those are among the things that have led to the decay, really, in our system. Well, isn't yes. that amazing? I mean, I uh, if you don't mind, I, I, I hear from both ends where um, I hear the technology with some doctors. They They really sort of despise it because people are finding so much online now that they come into the office and it's like an hour discussion because they've had this whole list that they want to go through. And then um, on the other hand, I hear a lot of, um, you know, I've been speaking to some, some uh, young doctors in residence right now, and they're excited about it because they're excited to say, wow, you know, it's great because these patients are coming in, you know, with this list. And it sort of opens up all these other doors that could be for that individual. I mean, so it's like this, this incredible balance that everyone's trying to find right now. Here, so here's what I think is the problem. So, yes, doctors feel burdened by patients coming in with what we call reams of paper, um, you know, <laughs> that they've gotten off of the internet. But part of the problem is that it does, right, the reams of paper don't fit into the standard doctor-patient relationship the way we know it. We need to rethink the doctor-patient relationship. Maybe the doctor and the patient do a lot of stuff offline before they even meet face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Maybe the doctor actually prescribes information for the for the patient to read that they know uh, is trustworthy in advance um, of that interaction. Maybe the patient actually looks at that information in the doctor's office while they're waiting. I mean, I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of ways to rethink it. So, yes, I think technology, when you try to sort of move it into the existing doctor-patient relationship, doesn't work. But we need to open our minds to sort of rethinking. So I'll give you um, another example about rethinking. So we take these elderly patients, you know, in their 80s, and we tell them to come in and see the doctor once every month or whatever. Well, getting an elderly mm -hmm. wheelchair-bound patient in to see the doctor is impossible. And then they have to wait, and then there are all kinds of other problems, and there's paperwork to fill out, whatever, and the meeting, and, and the patient is 
hungry, tired, whatever, the interaction does not go well. What if that patient, that elderly patient, didn't actually come in at all? What if it were a Skype uh, interview? What if there were sensors in the house that determined how well the patient was doing? Maybe it's taking the patient longer to answer the telephone than it used to do. That may be an early warning sign that the patient is not as mobile as they were previously. So I think that we need to think way outside the box and think creatively. I love that idea of Skyping with patients. I, I really do. We, we were, um, I had an uncle in his 90s who was supposed to die within a certain period anyways. We, we took him into our home. We wanted him to die in our home. And the beauty of the Skype was he was able to see people very, very dear to him from distances, people he hadn't seen for 10 to 15 years. And, you know, it was, um, the connection was still there. He could still understand the questions that were asked. And how interesting that you bring up doctor and patient Skyping, because that would save both parties so much time. <laughs> now, that said, I actually believe in the laying on of hands. I really mm -hmm. think that can be really therapeutic. There's nothing like being in the same room uh, with another person. But, but if you're not using the time to lay on hands and to really connect, then it's really not, not doing anything. So, you know, do all that other stuff through Skype and handle all the paperwork and everything else in the non-face-to-face -face kind of situation. Um, you know, there's other ways of thinking creatively about the doctor-patient visit. What if, and this is being done, um, a group of patients with diabetes came in to see their doctor all at the same time. They could have, you know, a five-minute one-on-one with the doctor, but then lots of the stuff is, is communicated in a group setting. And then one person can say, oh, I tried such and such, and, you know, and this worked for me. And, you know, so you could learn from each other. I think the value of learning from patients, other patients, uh, I can't stress it enough. So important. And we need to find ways to really um, mine that rich material. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Uh, the healthcare system itself has many facets to it. There's legalities and there's financial parts. There's responsiveness to a healthcare system. But from the medical point of view, from the doctor point of view, I think it really starts with what doctors or what medical students are being chosen to get into medical school, and those are the ones that come out and become the doctors that take care of a, a culture for a, a time period. What, what areas are you looking into in the process of choosing medical students, for example? Yeah. Can, we, can we improve on getting doctors that are more uh, passionate or creative rather than something or someone that may be just more brilliant. Mm -hmm. So this is an area that's really, really interesting to me because it gets to the root cause of the problem. So some people I think are just, they're very smart, but not really um, meant uh, to be physicians. It's not really the best fit for them. So how do we determine who is actually going to be a good doctor 
in the admissions process. So right now the admissions process looks at, you know, your grades and your boards, but that really does not predict how well you're going to do in clinical medicine. So what we do is an interview. Um, and we try to get at, you know, who, who you know, uh, who's caring, who is a people person, who can communicate well. And what we've learned is, and there's data to support this, that an interview doesn't predict either uh, how well somebody's going to perform as a clinician. So we've got a system uh, where where we don't we're, we're not really choosing uh, choosing for selecting for that very important piece of being a clinician. So um, there's a new system that we're experimenting with, uh, which is called uh, the MMI or multi mini interview, where you actually, instead of having one interview at, at a medical school, you have seven, eight, or 10 interviews, and they're all very short, less than 10 minutes. And each person um, has the exact same scenario to read for each station. So in other words, let's say there'll be 10 stations and you spend six minutes in each station. Each station is identical. There's a scenario that you read and you talk about and you don't know about it in advance. Mm -hmm. um, and the same person, interviewer, mans that station. So the same person is evaluating everybody who comes through and comparing them to each other. And what you're looking for is how well does this person reason? How well does this person think on their feet? How well uh, does this person communicate? Um, how well does this person recover if they're nervous and they don't know what to do in this situation? And all of these situations are designed to really select for the things we're looking for in our doctors. Hmm. Is it working anywhere? Is it actually <laughs> happening or is still this theoretical physics? <laughs> it is. So um, the, the, um, the system was developed at McMaster University in Canada. Um, and they have some preliminary data um, that uh, is really quite positive. Um, really does look like it, they, they are able to predict who is going to be uh, perform better uh, clinically. Um, and there are a handful of medical schools in this country uh, that are experimenting uh, with this system. Needless to say, students uh, are not really embracing this because it's scary. Um, and you know, you used to be able to predict, oh, I'm going to be asked why you want to be a doctor, you know, tell me about, you know, the hardest thing you've ever done. You know, it was very predictable. And, and now, of course, you go in there and you can't even prepare. Um, and oh, by the way, these stations, there's no right answers. Um, so <laughs> how reason through it, how you deal with it, how, you know, so... Well, I remember. you know, you know what? I mean, it, it, it is so funny because uh, on this end, some of us are, are chuckling away here because it's exactly what actors have to walk into. <laughs> you know, you're, you're set in a scenario where you have to improvise immediately and under the nervous tension and you're being judged. You know, you are being it is an interview. It is an interview, but you don't know what's coming next. You don't know the next question. And uh, yeah, it, that's 
that's great, I think. <laughs> I remember during my interview, uh, one of the questions was, why do you want to be a, a doctor? And at that time, I was thinking about being a surgeon. And I said, well, I love to use my hands. And the admission person looked at me and said, have you thought of becoming a mechanic? <laughs> so, I said, no, that's why I'm here. Uh, Beth, uh, Christina, did you, did you want to bring something up? Yeah, because I'm so glad you brought up the actor thing. One of the other things is, okay, so even if you select the right people, you have to train them the right way, too. So just as med medical education has to change, too, right? Because we want to teach doctors. We get the right person, but now we've got to teach them to listen to the patient, mm -hmm. you know, to teach them about shared decision-making, teach them about, um, yeah. you know, patients' values and preferences. And so one of the ways to do that is actually to bring professional actors into medical schools yeah. and to tell them, you know, give them, give the actor a scenario mm -hmm. and just go with it uh, in, you know, while you're working with a student and, um, in, you know, in one of these rooms where that you can observe how the student is doing. And it's scary again for the students, but, you know, I think will help with communication skills, thinking on your feet and all the things that we're looking for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there is, there is a, a wonderful training technique that actors use, which is a base of what uh, an individual called Viola Spolin, and it's theater games. And in three months worth of these games, so it's not studying of scripts or anything like that, you really learn to listen. You learn body language, you learn full communication, which is amazing how this woman had put all those pieces together with the psychology, etc. But it works across the board. It's not just about actors because we all act every day in life. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. Um, but it's so interesting what you're saying about the communication, because as we know, we've all run into those people who really cannot communicate. And you sit on the other side and go, am I supposed to trust you? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. So I actually have a daughter who's an actress. And um, so I and or studying acting. And whenever people look at me like, oh, my God, how can you stand it? She's not going to find work, whatever. My, what I say is I think that acting prepares you for anything mm -hmm. you're going to do in life because mm -hmm. it teaches you uh, how to work on a team. It teaches you, you know, how to um, uh, communicate. And it teaches you how to, you know, deal with a situation that you didn't expect. Yes. So. Yes. It's not as glamorous as people think it is. It is one of the hardest businesses in life. <laughs> Preparation for life, I think. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. I think there's going to be uh, hopefully a lot of changes in the medical school curriculum. And we've been watching it for years, how hard it is had to have uh some knowledge of the integrative programs that are the integrative healing systems that are out there should be part of medical school, more nutrition. I even believe that at some point, something that you and I do as medical guides uh, will become an actual specialty in the future. It's too complex now to just be able to deal with it completely on your own. Christina mentioned uh, before about her uncle, and all of us deal with uh, patients, family members, friends, relatives that are coming to end of life. Mm -hmm. uh, 
what are your thoughts on how we're going to change the view of end of life, how technologies will come into play? What's new and innovative in end of life care? We did, mm -hmm. just to let you know, we did a session with Dr. Bordofsky, Michael Bordofsky, who talked about hospice, and we, we had a very nice discussion about hospice and palliative care. But what are your thoughts? Okay, so in, 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 uh, so this is a really, really important area and one that I feel passionately about. And um, in this arena, I'm going to sort of uh, talk more about communication. So the first and foremost problem is that we don't talk about how we want to die. Death is a part of life. And I think we really need to get over this fear of death and death being the enemy. So I think that, you know, sometimes we keep people alive who really do not have any quality of life. And we really need to think about that. And most people, when you ask them, they want to die at home. And yet most people die in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have those conversations. Um, so to me, that is the really most important thing. So we should be having these conversations when we're well. And I know it's really hard. But, you know, when are we together? We're together at Thanksgiving and other holidays. We should be open and talking about these things. It's incredibly difficult to do, but um, incredibly valuable. So um, I dealt um, this past November with, um, with my father's death. So I'm going to tell you this story because people look at me like I'm a little crazy, but here we go. No um, one's going to be looking at you here. It's just, it's just Christina and I. <laughs> so, so my father was relatively well. He was 85. He had a bunch of things that were wrong with him. Um, but his health was just sort of slowly going downhill and he really was unable to ambulate the way he would like. And he just sort of was failing and he really wasn't happy with his quality of life. He, um, he got pneumonia. And he really was laid low. And what my mother and I decided to do based on conversations with my father in advance of this all happening uh, was that we actually took him home. We did not go to the hospital and get intravenous antibiotics and, you know, where he would uh, have become confused, fallen out of bed, broken his hip, you know, gotten a urinary tract infection and, you know, all those bad things that happen to elderly people in the hospital. We took him home on oral antibiotics and we got hospice involved. And I have to tell you, you know, it was, it was a beautiful thing. It was a very brave thing because I think, you know, Modern medicine could have prolonged his life for a few more weeks, maybe even a few more months, but it was not the quality of life that he would have enjoyed. And um, we used to talk about pneumonia as being the old man's friend. And I think in this particular case, uh, it, it really was. So my father was able to die at home surrounded by his family. Mm. So, I, you know, I think it's about having the conversation and having the conversation when you're well. And we don't, we're too afraid of death to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I love working with the elderly people. I call them our elders and it's elder wisdom. And uh, so many of them say the same thing. It's like when, when I tell people that I've been working with my mother for the last five years to have, help her feel more comfortable about her transition, that she can choose the time when she'd like to transition. 
Um, the, it's a, a difficult balance. They, you know, people say, well, do you want her to go that quick? <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, I would like her to see her go peacefully. Right. Completely confident that this is just a part of life and it is a transitional process. And it's very beautiful. I, I, I always say it's, you know, um, they, they call me like a, a deaf doula, basically, where, mm -hmm. you know, working with, with the elderly or working with people who are in that position. It is a beautiful transition. And it is creating yes. that awareness and that sense of confidence in everyone around. Um, I, I, I So far, in my experience, the elderly um, tend to be a little more at ease with the transitions that they have to make. It's the family that's around them. That's the difficult part. <laughs> I always right. find it's like they're the ones who refuse to let go. They're the ones who want all the extreme measures to be taken place, right? So I agree, but I think what ends up happening is you end up with an elderly person in the hospital, you know, on a respirator, on a ventilator, uh, you know, mm. completely comatose, not knowing what's going on. And I think that what families need to realize is that that is even more painful uh, to watch. And they may even be in the situation where they have to decide whether to remove life support. Mm -hmm. And and that's, you know, so I think we need to think things through and it's very hard for us to do in our culture, I think. Taking that a step further and bringing it more personally, Beth, at the beginning, you mentioned uh, your brother mm -hmm. uh, passing away at an early age. And when we talk of end of life, immediately the you you picture somebody who's elderly and at end of life, but there are young people at end of life also. Uh, any Anything in that area that you look at using technologies or uh, patient empowerment or social media to work with uh, families there? Yeah, yeah. so um, first of all, in, in, in the social media arena, there's a lot going on, actually even for the elderly. So um, when I left my last sort of real uh, job in a real building, um, <laughs> I did so. One of the things that um, that pushed me to do that was I had a very dear lifelong friend who was dying, as I mentioned before, of metastatic breast cancer. So there were a number of things that we were able to do using social media. So first of all, uh, we use social media to arrange helpers for her. Um, so I arrange all kinds of volunteers to take her to doctor's appointments, uh, bring dinners, um, and that sort of mm. thing. Um, and you can also use social media to update lots of people about your condition. And I think that can be incredibly therapeutic for somebody, uh, you know, who's facing the end of life when they, you know, they're really angry um, about it and really thinking about all the people that they're going to miss. Um, but I think, um, you know, the most important thing, even for a young person, is really coming to terms with the fact that they're dying. And we don't talk about it. Doctors don't talk about it. And um, in my brother's situation, you know, uh, he, he actually had a doctor who was not talking to him about it. And my husband and I brought him from New York to Massachusetts, where we were in our training, to go to a doctor we knew would talk to him about it and would be able to say to him, 
You know what, David, it's time to to start thinking about saying your goodbyes to people. And we need to be able to do that. Doctors don't know how to do that at all. Feel incredibly uncomfortable with it, but really, really important. Even more important, I think, with a young person than with the uh, elderly who know, really, tend to know when it's the end. Do you have any uh, <laughs> websites or places that you would recommend people to go if you were talking about social media? Anything like that? Well, yeah, so one of the websites that helps you to um, coordinate um, the, the care uh, among caregivers is called Lots of Helping Hands, um, L-O-T-S-A, Helping Hands. Um, and um, I've used that uh, with three different um, friends um, who have had medical uh, problems to, again, coordinate uh, the care. And then um, there are a whole host of, um, there are just hundreds and thousands of websites that um, uh, allow you to communicate with other people in your condition or other caregivers, you know, so um, there are not, there's not one in particular, but there are, there are all you have to do is Google them and you'll find tons of them. Many of them are, um, you know, completely open uh, to the public. From your point of view, you know, when we were in medical school, one of the things and through all of our training, we le we learned to read literature. You were at the British uh, Journal. Uh, we read things, but we're able to discern that this is a good study, not a good study. People on the Internet can read anything now. How do you suggest that they teach themselves or learn how to discern mm -hmm. that something they're reading is appropriate rather than going off in tangents just because mm -hmm. there's a group that's talking about it doesn't mean it's necessarily great information all the time. Absolutely. So first of all, let me say, Glenn, that I think that um, we doctors are not as good at discerning um, the literature as we think that we are. And part of the problem is that there's just too much of it, uh, you know, to even look at. So I could look at one study and possibly, uh, you know, give you a nice critique about it. But there may be 20 other studies um, that say the opposite. And I may not have put my hands on those. So I think that what we need to do is to, uh, all of us, doctors and patients, to be able to find sites that are doing the hard work for us and that are credible. So how do you know if a site is credible? Well, first of all, you know, rules of thumb, you know, .govs and .edus tend to be more credible uh, than the standard uh, .coms, but obviously there are exceptions. One thing um, I used to do, I know I've done a lot of different things, but one of the things I used to do a lot of work on is ethics um, on the Internet. And one of the things that a credible website should have is an About Us page where they really talk about who they are, how they create their material. And it's really mm -hmm. important to look uh, at that and, and see who these people are. Oftentimes, it'll be a thinly veiled a drug company uh, website, you know, that's just trying to push mm -hmm. a drug or, you know, something uh, like that, some hidden agenda. So very important and very, very difficult. Hmm. You know, each week uh, I ask our guests uh, if they have a special health tip based on their own experience in life. Uh, that they would like to share with our viewers. Do you have something you would like to share with us today? 
I do. And it's gonna, oh, good. it's very simple. Um, my health tip is ask lots of questions. Um, mm. And um, it, again, it sounds really almost naive, but so mm. true. Um, if you don't understand what your doctor is saying, you cannot leave that office. Um, you need to understand exactly what's going on. You need to have all of your questions asked. And if your doctor doesn't want to answer your questions, you need to find a new doctor. It's that relationship, I think, is incredibly important. One of the pieces of work I did a while back was on um, uh, prescription drug labeling, right? Like just how that jar, that, that little vial gets labeled. Well, you can't imagine how many different ways people can interpret, you know, take one pill a day. Um, you know, do I take it at night? Do I take it in the morning? Do I take it with food, without food? You know, ask. You have to, you have to own uh, your own health and ask questions. Um, and, you know, similarly, um, the doctor has to, has to listen in order for there to be an optimal healing relationship. So... Uh, you know, if if one of the key reasons to ask is to make sure that your questions are going to be answered, because if they're not, it really is time to move on to a new practitioner. And that could be it doesn't have to be a doctor. It can be a yoga instructor or, you know, a nutritionist. If you're not feeling that you can ask questions and that it's a give and take relationship, it's time to move on. Hmm. That's a great health tip. And we've we found uh, through our 20 other episodes that sometimes the uh the health tip the simpler it is the more sense it makes <laughs> but that's so that, life isn't it <laughs> yeah, that's very good uh, you know there's so many things we're bringing up and i think we could go off in many tangents for every one of the things you've talked about today and hopefully we can have you on again but i wanted to ask you and give you an opportunity is there anything that uh we did not bring up today that you are interested in putting out to our viewers? Yeah, I guess what I'd really like to do is it's sort of reiterating something that I already said, but um, I, I think that, and it gets back to something you asked about earlier. I think the most important thing in the healing relationship is again for the doctors to listen. So there was recently um, a case here in New York. I don't know if you guys heard of it. It's a horrible story of a young boy, I think about 12 years old, dying of sepsis. And um, it's horrific. It is just horrible, horrible, horrible. But sepsis for everybody listening is an overwhelming infection in the body. Exactly. In so what happened to this kid uh, what, had a little scratch on his knee uh, from or somewhere on his body from uh, playing baseball. Then he developed other symptoms and some fever and people just assumed he had a virus on top of this, um, this little injury. And long story short is the family kept saying over and over again, no, it's not a virus. There's something else going on here. And the doctors just sort of said, um, it is, you know, it's going around. We've seen it. And long story short, 
the family wasn't listened to. And I think that that's the take home message from that case. Most people are talking about, oh, we need better ways of detecting sepsis. And, you know, uh, we need to check the labs better and do all these other things. And again, I'm going to go back to the simplistic and say that, you know, again, for me, the key thing that's broken in our healthcare system is communication and for patients to speak up and for doctors and other practitioners to listen. So I have a question on that. Um, to be able to diagnose the sepsis, what would what would have had to be done? Like a blood test or, you know, a swab? What, what would yeah. it have taken? Mm-hmm. So in that particular case, um, there was a problem, which was, um, so, so here are the ways that the sepsis uh, could have been detected. One is that your white blood cell count in your blood goes way, way up because when you're fighting infection, your body makes extra white blood cells. Mm -hmm. Well, in this particular case, his white blood cells were elevated, but nobody checked. Second thing is when you have sepsis, overwhelming infection, your blood pressure may be getting too low and your heart rate may be getting too fast. Well, that was happening in this child also. But again, people were fixated on what they thought the diagnosis was, and so they weren't looking um, at all of the data in front of them, sort of jumping to conclusions. Mm. So there were some very simple things that would have detected this, but I'm going to call that a communication problem too, Mm. because the tests were done. They just weren't looked at and reacted to. Oh, so the tests were done. They were. Wow. Yeah. But again, everyone just had in their mind what the diagnosis was and send them home. It's a virus. Send Mm -hmm. them home. Mm -hmm. So, yes. How often do we hear that happening? I think it it happens um, more often than we would like. You know, I think that Medical care has gotten very complicated. Um, it's very hard to keep track of all the different blood tests and other tests. And, um, you know, I, I think things sadly. And then there are handoffs from specialist to specialist to specialist. And I think things get le- lost in the shuffle. And I think the patient is left to be their own case manager, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is why we need medical guides to help us through the through the process Mm -hmm. because i think it's really not fair for the or possible really for the patient to manage all the different pieces and pull them all together (laughs) when they're trying to get well at the same time right (laughs) exactly yeah again it does go back to what you said we know our bodies and our family know best and i think that if we kind of summarize and review what you're doing, uh, Beth, is you're looking at communication as a very important part of doctor-patient relationships and patient empowerment. You're putting technologies together. And uh, so for me, at least, even though we may have some parts of our system that are broken, I feel that because there are people like you out there who are innovators and not just thinking about it at, at your house, but you're going to medical schools, you're going to uh, publishing places, you're working with communities, you're doing so many things. 
it it does give hope uh, to all of us that the the future of medicine mm -hmm. uh, has some light in it. Yeah, and I think it's I think that there is a very bright future. Um, we just need to get stuck out of our rut and you know start thinking creatively because there are so many innovative things to do at our fingertips. And I think on that note, leaving on a bright future, I would like to say that I'm very grateful to our special guest, Dr. Beth Nash, for sharing her wisdom and expertise with us today. I want to thank all of my healers and my teachers, and I look forward to being with Christina as we go on another journey into the healthcare galaxy next week. But until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you so much, Dr. Beth Nash. Thank you, Dr. Thanks. Nash, and thank you, Dr. Woolman, our medical guide, as per usual, another wonderful, wonderful show. Um, I'd like to remind our viewers and thank our viewers for joining us today. Um, don't forget, uh, to, every Tuesday, it is our Magical Medical Tour with Dr. Glenn Woolman, and every Wednesday is Trinity of Life, both here on yogahub.tv. And just to let you know, the um, video replays are uh loaded up right after the show. And for those of you, we have started our podcast. So you can find us through the iTunes directory and just search for yogahub.com or YHTV. And you can stream uh, the first few shows. I do believe the first six shows of Magical Medical Tour now. So we're very excited to um, present that to you. Um, and uh, I just want to remind everyone, you can also find Dr. Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman. And on Twitter, his handle is at Glenn Woolman. That's pretty easy. <laughs> and of course, you can find him directly and contact him directly through his own website, glennwoolman.com. And thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you tomorrow, which is Wednesday. And again, next Thursday, Tuesday. <laughs> Take care and namaste. Have a wonderful week. Bye.